Hello. Hey, hey, good morning. Good morning. So nice to see the transition to the private sector for those two as the Bruce Greenstein hype team. <laughs> Hard to follow them. those guys. I thought it was going to be so cool not wearing a tie, and then they beat me by wearing jeans. <laughs> yeah. Tough to keep up. It's always a one-up. Um, so first of all, I just want to welcome you here um, as part of our community. So, you. Um, you know, uh, Farzad and Anish, as you heard, were, have really been part of our journey since the beginning and a big part of this ecosystem. And now we're really happy to have you come into it and your time here in support of this community means a lot to us, so thank you. My pleasure. Um, and because you're, you're new to this uh, crazy family here, uh, why don't you just introduce yourself, um, not just HHS, but you know, who's Bruce and how did you get to where you are? Perfect, so we've got a wide room. Let me switch around a little bit. So um, this isn't my first time in government, um, and over the last 12 years, I've only been in government for about uh, three years of it. So it's good to be back in. What Farzad said about government services is exactly right. It's, uh, it's an incredible privilege to do public service and do it for the right reasons, to try to serve the people whom uh, our programs impact, or often the most vulnerable in our country. So getting to do this is, is a real pleasure. And that just going back to what Anish and Farzad are doing, so you could list all their accomplishments and they're voluminous and incredibly important, but it says a lot about what you do when you leave government. Mm -hmm. They could have both gone to firms and made a lot of money and used access and know how to navigate the system, but instead they're focused on using the mechanisms that were created for, for people like you here, companies, but really intended to improve the care, the quality, the efficiency for patients and providers. And that's a real testament to the work that they did and their sort of, their compass about ways to use their professional acumen to really impact people's lives and it's, it's admirable. Um, I think uh, Todd Park told me when, when I got to know him when he was in this role, he would always say he has the best, best job in Washington, mm. D.C. and I, I have to agree, it's really pretty fun. Um, but I, I spent my time in really these four boxes, the way I lay it out. I started out in academics as a, as a health economist, and uh, I could not see myself being a professor when healthcare reform in the, in the 90s was starting to bubble up, and I needed to be a part of it. And that's where I think I learned my own uh, proclivities, that I needed to be on the side of action, not just, uh, you know, writing. And so I've spent time in state government. I spent time in federal government uh, at CMS running parts of the Medicaid program. Um, I, I was the Secretary of Health in Louisiana for, for some time, and I was in government before that. So I've got a chance to bring up managed care plans, to run uh, a $9 billion agency, 11,000 people, a lot of facilities running, privatizing a lot, shutting some down that had very, very small volumes. On the business side, I've, I've worked in very large corporations as well. I ran Microsoft's worldwide health and human services business division. So that was really fun and eye-opening, working with uh, government agencies and large health systems all around the world. And then I worked in uh, private equity and startups. I just finished uh, a tour with Quartet Health um, doing behavioral health primary care linking on a platform. And uh, so small company, they just raised Series C last week. So I was there for the, the time of the B. And I really got a sense of just understanding what what the real pace of startup business is like, which is blindingly fast, yeah. and able to make some decisions that may not all be right, but you're testing them out all the time and iterating oftentimes by the end of the day, before the, you know, way before the end of the week. And so that's, those experiences have, have shaped 
my background, my understanding. And so I bring all that to this new this office that is still relatively new in the scope of you know a, a, with the largest government agency on the planet. So HHS, by the way, about 80,000 people and then hundreds of thousands of contractors. 1.154 trillion dollar spend. So larger than than many governments. Period. Clearly, the largest government agency in the world, and made up really of uh, multiple agencies that operate. This is one of the learnings that I've had. It operates as a confederacy. So CDC, CMS, FDA, and NIH are the four biggest ones. And they really operate with a level of uh, independence and flexibility, and they're driven by their leaders, and they have an agenda, and they all sync with what the secretary in the White House wants. But they operate as these large enterprises that are insulated in many ways, and we'll get to data, and that's the piece that we're trying to sew it together. So I bring the, the business side understanding the government side to help navigate and make the office uh, more flexible and more results-oriented, and we do it in a very kind of business-like way, and we see ourselves as a startup. And when we did our FY19 budget ask, we treated it like a round raise and prepared as such, and all the budget writers came back and said, we've never had such good budget presentations, and we ended up growing our budget substantially over the last year which shouldn't be a measure of success. It's not something I uh, want to see that budgets grow, but it really gives us the resources that we could execute against our goals with. Right. Well, it's a necessary, necessary factor for you. Yeah. So that's great. You've got a really varied background, and you have also that entrepreneurial mindset so that you can relate to a lot of the folks in this room. Um, so obviously, you know, healthcare or the government plays a huge role in the journey of being a digital health entrepreneur. In other industries, you can really sort of go around uh, government and just go either direct to consumer or B2B, but here, you know, such a highly regulated industry. Um, and you've talked a lot about, uh, with me, about the, the sort of silos that you're trying to break down. And that's something that your predecessors in Todd Park talked about, you know, seven years ago about data liberation. But it's hard, right? It's, you know, you're talking about agencies where privacy is a huge concern um, and they're working hard in, you know, in their own trenches. So how's the, the journey going to kind of get people to share data? Because it's such a great opportunity. So this is elemental and uh, should be interesting to a lot of companies that want to use uh, the government's health data to do things that add value and create value across the market and improve people's lives. So Todd Park was the perfect person, super bright, great background, infectious personality, mm -hmm. and would jump up and down on the stage, data liberation, mm -hmm. and everybody said, yeah, we're into it. But they're into the philosophy. And so when we started work, uh, in the middle of last year, beginning of last year, we sort of picked up all those talking points from Todd and everybody was, yeah, liberate data, it's gonna be great. And then we had these uh, private meetings with agencies, you know, CMS, CDC, HRSA, ARC, blah, blah, blah. And everybody said, oh, no, no, it's great to liberate data, but our data is private, it has a lot of yeah, concerns. We have a mine. data use agreement, we can't share. Like, oh, okay, that's strange. And then go to the next one. Oh, yeah, yeah, you should have everyone's data, but you can't have ours, I'm sorry. And so we were running into a brick wall, and the secretary said this is a priority. We work with the White House and OMB. Open data is a big concern, and there's public use files, and that's great. But we needed to go deeper. We needed to uh, both bring data out that hadn't been shared publicly before and give it access, and we also need to connect data. That's the important part. We'll get to that in a second. When we took a use case approach, so 
from all across the country, governors, health systems, families, uh, the opioid epidemic is, is crushing. And so when various agencies within the department were putting their plans together, we knew that from technology and data, we had a major contribution to make to fight the opioid epidemic. And we went back to many of the same people. We said, we're going to put on a, um, bring data together, we're going to have a codathon, and we're going to start to put the results in, in certain parts of data that give us some insight to help us on prevention and treatment. And the same people that said, oh, no, my data is private, you can't use it. We said, we think that your data will save lives, like soon, this month, mm -hmm. next month. And the same people said, oh, really? My data is that important? And so we made this transition from this abstract thing, share data, liberate data, to let's use data specifically to save lives this way. And now we have a, a body of evidence by doing this codathon. We had uh, 51 teams from all across the country come in. Some were from universities, some small startups, some of the largest uh, technology corporations. And they turned out uh, solutions that even the second and third and fifth and eighth place teams had great solutions in ways to look at our data that we hadn't quite figured out. And there's a sense of humility. The notion of having a codathon is quite interesting. It's either a curiosity or it's, a, it's an explicit admission that our problem is so big and so tough and we can't make enough progress for it to satisfy ourselves. We need every bit of help from everybody that's willing to come to DC on their own time volunteering and make a contribution to help us fight the epidemic. And the response was overwhelming. It's you know, just a great sense that we're all in it together and we all need to work together to try to make progress, in this case against opioids. So we use that as the method and we're now putting together agency after agency, different uh, data sets to be able to make something uh, put together that it works for people in the community, startups, researchers, and importantly, government officials. If you're in one agency, you're used to looking at your data set or some couple of data sets from within the agency, not from other parts of government to give you insights, to spend the money, uh, you know, using better insights making, better decisions. It could be on grant funding. It could be the bets you're going to place in next year's budget about where you'll spend it. Is it on diabetes? Is it on Alzheimer's? Is it going to be on, uh, is payment reform working? Are there unintended consequences that are jacking up costs in another part of our program? We don't really have all the answers today unless you could bring the data together, and that's what we're trying to do. When it comes down to privacy and security, it's paramount, number one issue. But, and you all might have some experience with this, people have uh, HIPAA attorneys, privacy and security attorneys, people are schooled in this area. I'm trying to hire a data sharing attorney. Somebody that will say my primary goal is to figure out how to privately and securely share data very effectively. We don't have that, everything is upside down. The easiest way to answer the question is no. We like to share this data, no. Well, it's gonna be pretty secure that way. We wanna give access to it, no. Okay, then definitely we won't break a data use agreement. We need to figure out uh, strategically and then institutionalize this so it works for generations that data sharing becomes the default of the way we do business. Every data use agreement has to have that. Right now, CMS runs Medicare and Medicaid and AHRQ, which is the internal research organization, they do grants and, and uh, external research. They have 210 data use agreements together. There's only 300 employees in the whole agency. They pay over a million dollars to CMS. We're all in the same department to get the data. So there are certain things that we need to figure out to make our enterprise work more efficiently to turn out results that 
will benefit both the government making better decisions, but all the positive externalities accrue up to companies that want to do something with this data to create value from it and then serve the patients back in a better way. We'll save money and get happier patients. Yep. Well, it's great that you have the mindset to, you know, try to figure it out. It's not an easy job that you have to break down those barriers, um, but the, especially with all the advancements in AI, there's just so much potential there. Um, but, you know, this is an extraordinary room. I'm sure you've uh, gotten a sense for that. These are health transformers. They're entrepreneurs, investors, innovators. So, you know, we really are hopeful and excited, um, you know, that, that you're here, as I said, and, and want to understand best how HHS and the government can be a partner to innovation and help speed up the cycles rather than the sort of traditional reputation of government being slow and bureaucratic, which is like any large organization, but it's governments, so there's an extra layer there. Um, but you know, what's your philosophy and, and what are your hopes for how you could be a partner and yeah. an ally to innovators who are nimble and they're just trying to get something important done quickly? So two things. Um I'll, get, I'll make an announcement that'll be, be kind of cool to hear. But one is sometimes we, uh, we focus entirely on, in the phrase, next generation analytic tools or platform. I've heard that a lot uh, this week and I hear it all over the country. I'm happy with using Excel from Office 97 to do some basic analytics. <laughs> it's the point that we have to democratize the ability to do the analytics at the desktop for people that are just looking at some static charts and graphs. We have to be able to interrogate our own data by connecting it and making it more meaningful. Only from there, once we have a really good platform of people that can appreciate it, can then we start to do some things that are more interesting. This is in-house. Mm. Of course, AI across, you know, if we do AI on, you know, we talked about uh, what uh, optometrists as well as ophthalmologists can do on diabetes detection by, you know, reading screens. There's a, lo a lot that we can do. Uh, but we're trying to make the notion of analytics to be part of what the mindset is for everybody that works in the department. That's part of what, what our goal is. Think about it. Enterprise analytics isn't just a piece of technology. It's a culture and a behavior and a set of uh, actions that, that take place before big decisions get made or money gets spent. But the way to interface, and so there was a question right at the end for Farzad, and it seems like he stole my talking points. I had a similar day. At the end of the day, we were uh, sitting around uh, drinking bottles of water in the office, and I said, it was, oh, so fun. I saw three congressmen, that I, former congressmen that I knew before. Somebody said, well, why were they here? Well, they brought companies in. I said, well, why'd they do that? I'm like, I don't know. Why do they have to hire congressmen and, you know, swell people and, you know, fun to be around, but it's really not necessary. Uh, Anish said my email address, it's bruce.greenstein at hhs.gov. Um, I'll give you my cards. I can't remember my phone number, but uh, I'm happy to give it out to anyone. Not enough people actually use it. And I take meetings as long as there's value. And I ask everybody, don't tell me how whiz bang it is. Tell me what the business problem you're trying to solve. Tell me what your solution does. Tell me what the differentiator between that and what's out there, and what's the value proposition. Four questions. Just do that, put in an email, I'll see you. I took a meeting from a guy who is a copier salesman, just for the DC area. It's not like the national thing. He's a copier salesman. And he said, he, he said you may not be the right person, but you know, we sell copy machines. I'm like, dude, how'd you get my phone number? <laughs> and then I said, well, what exactly do you do? He said. I know, and he named the, the number of copy machines in our building. And he said, I know you don't use them all. I've seen the data, and I could save you a ton of money. 
sorry, you have my interest. How does this work? And so I gave him 15 minutes in our lobby. He didn't even have to sign in and go through security. I was so interested to see if it was real, what he was saying. And after 15 minutes, I said, all right, you got it. I'm going to set you up with the people that do the procurement around copy machines. This is what we need to do. It was technology. It was kind of a distributed network. It was shared services. It was all the philosophical components of doing business the right way. And I don't know if the machines are better or brighter colors or you know, more pages per minute. Somebody else will figure that out. But that was important. So anyhow, so that was a day with the congressman and I said, all right, there's got to be a better way. And the last startup that I was with, uh, we were in behavioral health, and having run uh, a state health agency, I know how badly states need help in behavioral health. And I couldn't get the board of directors interested at all. They're like, no, 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 government, too slow, so sales cycles are too long, it's too Byzantine a process, the whole notion of selling to the government is opaque, we don't know what your values and motivation and priorities are, and we don't even know who to call, like how, what's the front door? Like, who's on the board that somebody's cousin or friend that you can make a phone call and then you're meeting with the COO to start with? And I said, all right, we've got to solve that. And here's what the personal agenda is. I represent all the people who we serve at HHS, which is almost all of the country, and a lot of our money. And we don't get access to the best technologies and innovations. We wait five to seven years because these great companies that are doing incredible things, they go straight to the private markets, whether it's health systems and health plans. They're private equity, and private equity has very little appetite for going through a long uh, government sales cycle because they don't really understand how we operate. And so, I mean, if, if you ever sell to Blue Cross Blue Shield of pick your state, that sales cycle is not a lot different than the government, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, just so you know. And there's a lot of other health plans that you know, work in a very deliberate uh, fashion, and we do too. I don't think we're a lot slower. So we're starting this program of uh, startup days. We want to be very crisp about how our process works. The announcement is February 5th in Washington, D.C. We'll have the FDA, CMS, and uh, it's called the Assistant Secretary for uh, administration. And we do all of our big IT platform, copiers, for example. Uh, a lot of the procurements go through there. We'll have people at high levels of business execution. You don't want talking heads to tell you about you know, the new talking points uh, you know, from the secretary's office. You want to know how the place operates. How do you get in? Are there contracting vehicles? Can you be a prime to, uh, can you be a sub to a prime? Are there things for small businesses, for startups? How do you plug in? How do you make money? We want that to be extremely transparent. We want to show that there's opportunities, and we don't want to miss out on the next five to seven years what great companies are doing because you're too busy in the private sector. I want to compete with the private sector and get that innovation in HHS to be able to give it to the patients whom we serve, to the providers that work with us, and to the, the systems that we fund. So February 5th, we're going to have, it's going to be called Startup Day. We're going to do 13 over the next two years. Uh, we're looking at a number of states, that, or a number of cities. Nashville, Boston, Austin are going to be maybe three of the next uh, 12 that go on after that. We're looking for other cities that want to host. We work with partners. Those partners usually are incubators that have, you know, 100 or 200 startups as a part of it. We want to build community. Naturally, we'll have a lot of large companies that want to be like, hey, what's going on over there? How come we're not invited? Everyone's invited. Uh, but really, the focus is on the startup and the entrepreneur community to make it completely transparent and understandable. And it's our way to attract more innovation at the very beginning to help us solve problems instead of making us wait. So what happens at the end of a 
startup day? What's the sustainable effort? It's, so, first of all, it's, a, it's a great step. Yeah, a couple things. First is um, we'll have the ability for, we're going to choose a number of companies that are going to pitch. We'll have a panel of people that make decisions on behalf of the government to give feedback that's inferable for the rest of the audience. So people will get an idea of what it is that we're looking for. How do we go about uh, identifying and looking for new technologies and innovation and then you know, buying or ingesting them or, or routing them. So each event is gonna be like a classroom into itself and that we expect it creates additional community in each of those parts of the country. We wanna maintain relationships and we wanna our goal would be to have companies that come in, didn't understand how straightforward something was, and then end up uh, being a provider f you know, or a, engaging in business with the government at some point in the future. Very cool. Um, so while we have a few minutes left, um, one thing I want to be sure to talk about um, is you know, in this room, for a lot of these companies, uh, FDA plays a, a huge role in deciding their fate you know, whether or not certain things are going to be reimbursed or whether or not their solutions can even be sold. And I know there's been a lot of great progress recently. Um, and last year, FDA released some new guidance um, and that had been anticipated for, for quite some time. Um, so can you share a little bit about your philosophy or what we can expect um, yeah. in the coming years? So whenever you doubt government or say government's broken and it doesn't work right, pay attention to FDA today. Uh, under Scott Gottlieb's guidance, it's really turning into a, a very uh, business-friendly, innovation-forward place to uh, transact. So um, read the guidance on digital health. I think it's emblematic of what HHS is doing in, in healthcare in the world of business and policy. You said something about working with FDA and becoming uh, the ability to get reimbursed. Well, so that's the CMS side usually. Right. So, Watch what FDA is doing. There's a lot of guidance on, on the website, and I think it's, um, you'll continue to see more coming out this next year. And I think it's helpful. It's reducing a lot of friction for companies, both large and small. It eliminates a lot of the need for a, a lot of attorneys to do work that's not really about innovation. It's more about process, and they've got their focus the right way. Risk reduction, but not slowing down business. One thing that we're doing in our office around innovation within HHS is putting together uh, in parallel review, you've heard this before, FDA and CMS. If you have something that's going for FDA review, but your uh, investors are on the sidelines saying, well, you know, FDA is only a piece of the puzzle, you really have to get CMS to make some commitments to, uh, to, to be able to do reimbursement around this. We're putting these pieces together so that we're able to speed up innovation and for good ideas to attract better capital. Let me give you an example of something that we kicked off uh, last fall. In the space of, of uh, kidney dialysis, it's about $34 billion of expenditure, 6% of the Medicare budget. We spend more on kidney dialysis than all of NASA, all of the Department of Commerce. And it's a substantial piece of the overall federal budget, in fact. But in the space, in, in treating kidney disease, last year FDA approved 101 oncology uh, treatments, zero for kidney, and it's been like that for many years. Think about kidney dialysis. If you're diagnosed within five years, you have a 60% chance of dying. And there's been almost no innovation in kidney dialysis. It's one of these places in our healthcare system that technology and innovation is just sort of left out. 
So we've put together a, uh, a kidney innovation accelerator working with investors in the American Nephrology Society. We're putting NIH, uh, FDA, and CMS together to be able to declare what our interest is. We want innovation in this area. Now investors are putting money into this fund, and we want to go ahead and start to see new and promising innovations in the way to treat kidney. And we can't do it unless we articulate and show some light at the end of the tunnel for investors to fund uh, novel technologies to be able to have an impact. And so it saves people's lives, it makes families uh, happier, patients happier. It makes nephrologists that are just beat down. There's not been any, any promise in their part of healthcare. And we're doing it by way of organizing government smartly so that capital markets can react and innovators can flourish. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of, of what we do there. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. There's some folks from DeVita here, and I was just talking to them about the lack of innovation in that space yesterday, and the social determinants of health are a big factor there in terms of the adoption of new technologies within that demographic. So let me reject that completely. First okay. of all, you have a, you have a, mono <laughs> we have a monopsony purchasing environment. So we mm -hmm. pay for almost all of dialysis. There's a little bit on the front end private insurance before people switch over to Medicare. So we're the buyer, and we're not very good at it. Mm -hmm. You have a duopoly, two companies control almost all of the markets selling uh, the services. So it's not a hyper-competitive marketplace at all, which from your classic you know, economic studies, microeconomics, it should say that it won't be a very uh, robust competitive uh, marketplace if you only have two sellers. And that's exactly what's happened. Now, when we talk about social determinants of health, let me just sidetrack for a second. I know we're about out of time. Yep. Uh, but we often say those words without thinking. And it's kind of displaced this population health that we used before. And they're the wrong words. And words matter. We have social influences on health. I'm an economist, so I'm a, a mathematician by training. A determinant has a one-to-one -one relationship. If, if it's a true, if the social factors determines our health, then most of us should just go home because we can't have an impact, and that's exactly wrong. These are influences that make it harder for people with certain, uh, with certain sociological backgrounds uh, to, say, have their full potential of health or life, whether it's education, housing, uh, in their home, environment. Our goal is to figure out how to defeat those factors, how to give people the opportunity to live their life at their full potential. So the notion of calling it determinants is defeatist. We have to say that these are influencers that we're trying to defeat ourselves, and that's why we're in this game, to try to give people the most out of life possible. So you get two for one on that end. That's, I like it, I like it. So I think that's all the time we have, um, although I'm sure people would have loved to ask you questions. Do we have time for one question for Bruce? Yeah, from the audience? Yes, sir. He jumped right up, so I'll, I know he I'll wants listen. to ask you. <laughs> I'm Dr. Ravi Kamipali. I'm, I'm an infectious disease doctor and uh, obesity medicine and a telemedicine doctor in a startup company. Uh, the question I have is, you know, we are physicians, most of us here are into removing barriers to healing. So what I want to know is why can't we break down the barriers like, say, for example, for telemedicine, uh, there are rules that are established in delivery of care services, like HRSA rules, that tell you to only work in 
certain areas and certain areas are not allowed around the country. That is problem number one that I myself see as a problem. I try to take this telemedicine technology to try to deliver services to my nursing homes. And there is so much rejection and, and, and barriers. They say we don't get paid for it. Whereas I myself, I'm able to deliver. I'm in Lima, Ohio, and I deliver care to a person in Toledo. And I'm able to do that without a problem, but I'm not paid for it. And that is number one. And the second problem we have is these all the- Well, that's a huge first problem. How many got? Yeah. <laughs> right, many so, so let's do this. Let's stick with our first problem because I have a lot to talk about. And then afterwards, let's chit chat afterwards and I could get to your second. So um, this, especially a space like this, the notion of telemedicine as a promise for what we can do Today, we don't have to wait till tomorrow. We have the technology to do it today. It's there. I'm a believer in telemedicine. I'll have to share this, this quick. Uh, the world's most closed network health system. We had uh, people that would have, they would stay there for their whole life in this, in this health system uh, on a campus. And uh, a lot of people, as they age, they have you know, cardiovascular problems. They have to get in a van. So this is a, a state penitentiary, by the way. So you get in a van, you go, and you get your procedure done. Well, so then you need follow-up care. And this is two, three hours to drive to the academic medical center, a special, uh, you know, a special elevator with guards. And so what we found is that all this follow-up care, some of it was, um, was voluntary because it's fun to get off campus, get fresh air, and there were a lot of cute nurses, according to uh, the patients that I talked to, and they just wanted to get out of the prison and talk to re regular people. So uh, when we started to do uh, telemonitoring by nurses on our health health uh, clinic within the state penitentiary, those uh, follow-up visits, you know, declined completely. And the reason why I use that one is it's kind of a cool story. But the other piece is when you have the financial incentives perfectly aligned, you behave in a certain way. So there are a lot of health systems today that are absolutely welcome to do telemedicine, and very, very few do. You know, if it really makes total sense, uh, you know, ERISA plans, commercial health plans, they would be tel telemedicine like crazy, and they're not. Now, we have a lot of rules that I think are arcane, and they definitely deserve looking at. So the HRSA rules that he mentioned is called, it has to be in a HIPSA, which is health and health professional shortage area. Mainly, it's synonymous with rural areas. Then you can do telemedicine if the patient is there, and then uh, Medicare will pay for it. But listen, even the medical societies are not in love with the idea. You have to do a, sometimes a face-to-face -face meeting to initiate care. There's a lot of friction in this system. So the business world hasn't really worked out the way the business model ought to work. There's a lot of very good examples right now. But you'll see the government being maybe, I won't say fast follower, will be a decent follower, but we're not there yet in the way that it's been organized. You know that whether it's on dermatology, telepsych, just primary care, we're seeing more and more downward substitutes where uh, professionals that don't have to be a physician or a PA are able to do certain things and telemedicine can be a deliverer of that or it could be at the very highest level, say on cardiology, uh, to be able to deliver services in a telemedicine environment. I say that you'll see a lot of activity and some introspection in our uh, existing policies today within HRSA and CMS. We should see states that begin to experiment with this in the Medicaid program. And then, uh, you know, you're seeing a lot of activity in the commercial space today, but there's not a dominant 
uh, business model that says, oh, this is the only way to do it, this is how it has to be done. We're still in a very interesting time. I won't call it trial and error, but we're looking at good practices and better practices. We haven't found a best practice yet. So if you're doing that today, keep doing it. The last thing I'll say is, we don't have a reason to block this because we don't like innovation. But when we've brought up other services before in Medicare that are uh, where the site of service is away from where the clinician is, we've seen a lot of fraud and abuse and overbilling, upcoding and abuse of these billing codes. And that's something that I think would cripple telemedicine if the launch went too early and without a really good sense of making that business work tight. So again, Continue to work within your, your state uh, medical society and board of medicine, and then be influential on the national circuit as well. So unfortunately, we'll have to end it there. Um. Thank you. And thank you again for spending time with us, Bruce. It's great to have you as part of the community, and we're looking forward to working with you. Thank you. <laughs>